Today's will be from Matthew, um, chapter 22, verses 37 through 39. I'll be reading from the New King James Version, which can be found in the pew in front of you, uh, which can also be found on page 873. It'll be Matthew, chapter 22, verses 37 through 39. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. We have several visiting with us. We thank you so much for being with us this morning. Your visiting us has been an encouragement to us, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. We know some are visiting this morning because of the topic of the day and because of uh, the guest speaker that we had during the Bible class hour, and we appreciate and love Jerry Hill so much and his life of service. I wish that his wife could be here today. I know he does too, Fernhill. Uh, they are just a dynamite couple for God that has, when we, and I use the word dynamite to think of power. They have been a powerful couple in God's service uh, for many years and acted in a very direct fashion of lives. We appreciate Jeff Fortner and the words that he gave us during Bible class hour also the involvement that we as a congregation have and the opportunity that we have to do more as we think about serving our children. But today as we think about the second greatest command as so capably read, to love thy neighbor as thyself, we think about the aspect not just loving children, but the idea of that second greatest command is a requirement upon every Christian to love every day of our life. Now, just a side note that as we make some of these points, you might want to be thinking about. Recently, you've been asked to let it be known in areas and ministries that you want to serve. And people were asked to sign up for the SOS, Serving Our Savior, which is a formula of involvement. There's 51 ministries listed there. Have you stopped to consider that almost every one of those ministries fulfill the first and second greatest command? You see, the first greatest command is to service to God. To heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's left? Nothing else is left. It's saying to God, I want to be wholly yours. I submit myself in every way, every day of my life. Well, what's the second greatest commandment? To love thy neighbor as thyself. And so as we serve God, we say, God, how do you want me to serve you? And one of the ways that encompasses almost every area of our life, he says, I want you to think about your service to me as it pertains to the opportunities that you have to serve others. Let's think about this for just a moment with just one or two ministries. Why do we have individuals that go every month to the Wilson County Jail? Well, one, because they love God. And they want to fulfill God's command to go and even visit those that are in prison. But number two, why would they do that? It is a love for someone that's in need. 
Think about this, and we don't have time to develop this, but many of you know the scriptures well. If I ask you to find love, you would immediately say, read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, and that is God's description of agape. It begins with suffering long and is a kind, and it ends with that it never fails. All right, then we say, love who? Love our neighbor. And as Jeff so eloquently pointed out in Bible class, when Jesus was asked, who is your neighbor? Instead of just stating, this person is your neighbor. Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And you remember the, the priest and the Levi, they passed by the other side of the person that had been robbed and, and left half dead there. But here comes along an individual that the Scriptures makes a mighty statement. When Jesus says, that the Samaritan looked upon him and had compassion. That is the word that we ought to circle in our Bible. That's the word we ought to highlight and underline two or three times. Why? Because if we want to define how we see our neighbors, whether or not it's with or without fulfilling the second commandment, it's going to rise and fall upon whether or not we see them with compassionate eyes. Feel the the street and see our neighbor's house burn, not feel any respect, offer and support and say, something is wrong with our heart. We can look and see children in need. They did nothing and yet say, No, it's not perfect. We need to be fulfilled. Every opportunity that God gives us to see the pain of another is the opportunity for us to show compassion to our neighbor. How do we do this? Will you read with me? If you will, be turning to John the sixth chapter. As you're turning to John, the sixth chapter, I want to tell you a quick story by way of introduction. Rusty Stevens wrote this, an article that, this story I'm about to tell you, leadership about going out and because there were other things in the evening that needed to be done. And as he's mowing the lawn, his little six-year-old Mikey comes out and says, Dad... I want to mow the lawn. And so his son comes up under him and starts pushing on the mower. And just as he starts pushing on the mower, Rusty turns loose. And immediately the mower comes to a grinding stop. And the little Mikey is pushing and he's pushing and he can't even move the mower. And the little boy looks up and says, Dad, I want to help you, but help me. And this gentleman explains... He said, I got to thinking about how often that surely must describe our relationship with God. Where God says, I want to bless your neighbor. I want to bring comfort to someone down the street. I want to put a roof over someone's head. But I'm going to do that through Christians. Rusty said, as I mowed the rest of the yard with my back bowed and my legs straddling my son, 
He said, I realized that there was an easier way to mow the yard. But for my son's sake, there wasn't a better way. I wonder if God gives you and I the opportunity to help others more so for the benefit it does us than it even does for those of whom we help. 1 Corinthians, and just let me read to you this one. We're going there to the passage you turn to. 1 Corinthians 3 and 9, Paul would describe himself as this. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field and you are God's building. This morning, as we think about the second greatest command, I ask you, will you think about dedicating your life? Maybe it's a renewal. Maybe it's a continuing of things that are already right in your life. Or maybe it's a complete turning, turning point for you in your life this morning. But will you make sure that you leave here this morning saying, I'm going to be God's fellow worker. I'm going to get up every day and God and I are going to go to work to seeing how we can make a difference in the lives of individuals about us. Well, here's an individual that we usually don't think that much of in the Scriptures when we think about a difference maker. Read with me, if you will, this text. We're in John, the sixth chapter. We're reading a story that's so important. It's one of the few stories recorded in all four Gospels and recorded at length in all four Gospels. John, the sixth chapter, beginning at verse 1. After these things, Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. And Jesus lifted up his eyes. Now you see what's happening? He's seeing the needs of individuals. Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fishes. But what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number, about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise to the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come to the world. As we see this story, and by the way, some of the details that I may mention to you in this sermon come from even some of the other gospel accounts that mention some of the details that others don't mention, and John doesn't mention. It's interesting to note that he says there's 5,000 men, but the other Gospels make it clear that that was just counting the men. And so there might have been as many as seven, eight, nine, ten thousand, 10,000 or even more people gathered for this occasion. 
these people would follow Jesus out into a deserted area and the evening was coming. One gospel tells us that Jesus had compassion upon the people. You know, when the people first gathered, the evening came, Jesus asked them what we should do. And you know what the disciples' first answer was? Send them away. Well, that steps all over my shoes. How many times have you and I seen a need? And our very first thought is, how can I duck out of this? How can I get them going to the left while I go to the right? How can I get them coming in the front door while I go out the back door? How can I figure out a way to separate myself from this situation? They gave the most human, immediate response, I suppose, that's ever been. Jesus says, look at all these people, and, and the Scripture says He saw them with compassion. He felt their need. He felt the fact that they've been all day without food. These people needed food. Send them away. And Jesus, by His action, says, no, we're going to feed these. Now, this morning, let's make a few points about the one that usually goes unmentioned. Who really helped out this situation other than Jesus? Now, we know His miracle made it all happen by the power of God. But other than that, who helped out this situation? That little boy. I believe there's some lessons that you and I can learn from that little boy that will help all of us fulfill the second greatest commandment in our life every day. Number one, we have to see from that little boy that he was unselfish. Have you ever thought about the fact that over 5,000 people gathered that day and all of them needed a meal but one? And he was the one that had to give it up. You ever thought of that? Can you imagine the excuses he could have given? Well, you think all the grown-ups would know that they need to make provisions for themselves. When are they ever going to grow up? They're acting like a bunch of kids. Well, I wouldn't dream of leaving the house knowing that I'm going to be gone all day and at the close of the day not having something to eat. I asked Mama first thing this morning. Mama, I'm going to be gone a long time. Will you pack me enough for lunch and supper? It's the close of the day and this boy still has enough for supper. Look at all the adults. But now, don't we reason like that? You know, when we have, oftentimes we look to those that have not, and we become selfish. And we begin to make all kind of excuses how if they would have just done what I did, they wouldn't be without. Friends, I don't know any other way to say it but just this cut and dry. The Lord doesn't say... You spend half your life trying to figure out why they don't have, and then the rest of their half deciding whether or not you're going to help them. The bottom line, if we have the opportunity to help somebody and they have not, that becomes a great part of our responsibility. Turn with me, if you will, to Ecclesiastes, the fifth chapter. I'd like to turn to two or three passages quickly to talk about what God might have in mind about us helping others with the second greatest command. In Ecclesiastes, the fifth chapter, beginning at verse 13, we read of what 13 says is a severe evil. There's a severe evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches kept from their owner to his hurt. But those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there is nothing in his hand. Now, you may remember this text if I put it in context of this. 
A year or two ago, we did a series of sermons as we talked about stewardship and we talked about money as nothing more than a tool. And we, and we used the shovel as an example. You remember here, there was a severe evil. And the severe evil is when we think that God gives us so that we can hoard it, so that we can hang on to it. God gives to us so that we can pass it on. God gives to us so that we literally become a means by which God's blessings funnel to other people. Here he mentions an individual in Ecclesiastes, the fifth chapter, that he says has a severe evil and identifies it as this. Rich is kept. We place too much glory on investments and savings. Too much pride and trust in accounts and possessions. When we think that God gives us anything so that we can place our trust in it. God doesn't give us things to keep. God gives us things to use. And continually, without ceasing, we place our trust in Him. What would happen if everybody in this congregation went out this week? And you pick the figure in your mind. But you say, you know... I've got 50 bucks. I've got 20 bucks. I've got 100. I've got 1,000. I'm going to keep my eyes open this week because by the time the end of this week, I don't want that still in my pocket. I'm going to find somebody. I know God will allow our paths to cross and I'm going to bless the lives of someone just as God has blessed me. But we think like that and we become selfish. But that's mine. But if they did like I did, they'd have it. And isn't it interesting, in one of the great miracles of the Scriptures, Jesus called upon the only one that had to give it up so that everybody else would have. Now, you know the end of the story. All of them ate until they were filled. In other words, that boy ended up having more of a substance of a meal than what he would actually gave away. We see money is one way. If we go to Matthew, the 25th chapter, you remember Matthew, the 25th chapter very well. That's the story of the parable of the talents. We sometimes think about the talents being our abilities, but it's really anything that God places in our use. But the man that had five talents, what was he required to do? Use all five of them. The man that had two was required to do what? Use both of them. The one that had one was required to do what? Use one. But what did he do? He buried it. Did he still have it? Yes. Could he go and obtain it? Yes. So if I keep things, going back to Ecclesiastes 5, if I keep things, I become the wicked person. If I'm willing to give things, I become one that practices the first and second greatest commandment. Also, if you think with me in Colossians, the fourth chapter. Colossians, the fourth chapter, notice verse 5. We looked at this very recently on a Sunday night sermon. But notice again as we relate it to time. You see what we're doing here? We've talked about the money God gives us. We talk about the abilities God gives us. But what about the time that God gives us? Colossians, the fifth chapter, verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, 
redeeming the time. The article the tells us that we're not just redeeming time, we're redeeming the time. Well, what is the time? It is a certain occasion that he writes about here. In other words, he's talking about opportunities. Well, what's the opportunity in this text? To have a good influence on those that are on the outside. Will you have an opportunity this week to make a good influence on those who are on the outside? Hopefully so. Probably all of us will. Now the question is, will you redeem the time? The time. Will you redeem that opportunity? Will you use that as an opportunity to take what God has given you and buy a proper exchange? Purchase a proper exchange. We can use our time, our abilities, and our opportunities wisely if we're unselfish. I wonder if that little boy, you know how a lot of time boys run in twos and threes and fours and fives? You can imagine a big crowd gathered together. There's this one little boy over here. He came prepared. Andrew walks up and says, Son, Jesus asked us to go out and find out how many loaves we have in the crowd. I noticed you have a, a little lunch there. Do you mind telling us what you have? Well, I have five loaves and two fishes. Jesus would like for you to give that up so that he can feed everyone. I don't know how long the little boy had to think. But there had to be that moment of time where that lunch left his hand and into Jesus' hand. Can you imagine him turning around to his buddy saying, what did I just do? You think I'm going to get one little crumb? He's going to feed all these thousands of people? What did I do? Well, that brings us to the second point. Trust. Who do you trust? You know, if our trust is based solely upon us and our reasoning, we're never going to do much. It takes a great bit of trust to believe that what God asks is really best. And this trust demands this. I will obey God first. Reason later. Do you have this kind of... child is told, do so and so. Instead of the child going and doing so and so, the child says, why should I do so and so? What's wrong with that? It's undermining everything that God asks of us. It's building within that child the idea that when authority speaks, I need to question it. And you see the way children obey their parents is how they also come to know oftentimes the relationship between them and God. Do you want your child growing up and every time God says something, think, why God, if you can't put this into my human reasoning, forget it. I won't do it for you. I admire parents that sit down and they explain this to their children. I'm glad to help you grow and mature in any way I can, and I understand that from time to time you need to know why I ask you things, but let's get this straight. 
When I ask, you do, and after you do, you come back and we'll talk. Period. Trust is saying, God, I'll obey you no matter what. And if I can come back after that and make sense of it, so be it. And if I can never come back and make sense of it, I trust you, God. You don't have to lay out one, two, three, and four for me. It is trust. There's no trust in a parent-child relationship when the parent has to explain everything before the child gets up. And the truth is, there's no authority there. There's no such thing as trusting God when we say, well, I know that's what the Bible says, but... I want you to look with me a few passages and see if you and I really trust this. Let's go to Matthew, the sixth chapter. Matthew, the sixth chapter. What about beginning at verse 38? Do we really trust God on this? How's this going to turn out if I do this? If I give up my lunch, am I going to go away hungry? If God says you're not, you're not going to go away hungry. What if God says this? You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. That's tough. You trust God on that one? I have to really think about that one long and hard. Do I trust God on that? God, I'll obey you first. I may come back and reason it later, and I may not ever figure this one out, but I trust you. If you say do this, that's the way I'm going to show my love to my fellow man. That what we're reading is fulfilling the second grace commandment here. Verse 40. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. I trust you, God. Whoever compels you to go one mile... Go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now, he closes in 48 by saying, Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. In other words, this is what completes relationships. Do we trust God in that? Back in 2001, Gracia and Martin Burnham were in the Philippines they were Christian missionaries. The Abu Sayyaf, which is a link associated to Al-Qaeda. And this was before 9-11. They kidnapped them. And if we had some news clips to show you, you would say, oh yeah, I remember that story. It was a national news story. They were kidnapped for over a year, being drugged through jungles, going through 17 gunfights. And reading their book is, is remarkable, reading her book, because during the capture, he was killed. But reading her book is remarkable. And one of the things that stands out so powerfully in that book was the time on their journey, shortly after being kidnapped, but realizing that it was going to be a long ordeal, they realized, love your enemy came with no qualifiers. 
Love your enemy, even if they're terrorists. Go the second mile when compelled to go the first mile, even if they're terrorists. And that night they talked among themselves, this Christian couple did, about what God would have them to do. They were already being asked to lug heavy weights sometime through the jungle. They were already being fed just enough to stay alive while the others would oftentimes eat much more. And so the hatred was boiling inside them for their enemies. And one of the great things that they had to come to reason with in their spiritual growth and development from a jungle was to trust God even when He tells us how to love our enemies. They began praying for them. They began trying to go the extra mile for them. Do you and I trust God when He says, care for the orphans and widows? Do we trust God when He tells us how to live with our neighbor or how to deal with an enemy? Or instead, do we reason with excuses? Also, very keen to this, we see faithfulness. As we think about this young boy and his lunch, we think about the faith he had to have, or did he even have it? And this is what is the most interesting point of all, is that how, back to the other point of trust, we say, I'm going to do whatever God asked me to do and, and reason it out later, that reasoning it out later gives us an opportunity to see how God blesses obedience. We know that the love of God is keeping His commandments, John 14 and, and verse 15. And so here we have someone that's unselfish, and we have someone that places their trust in God, and so they openly give. They're very generous with others, and sometimes they don't even know why they're offering love to their enemy. They don't understand why they're going the second mile for somebody that in their mind doesn't deserve it. But they do what God says to do. And you know what happens? Faith grows strong. Why? Because we realize that God is able to take little and make much out of it. We sometimes sing the song, little is much if God is in it. When we read of the great hall of faith, is it because those individuals had such an extraordinary faith? Or is it because they had faith in such an extraordinary God? Friends, I don't mean to take away from any of those individuals in the hall of faith. They are awesome individuals that did so much. But what they did was that they served God and God prospered them for the kingdom's sake in a marvelous fashion. When Jerry and Fern Hills, 13-year-old son, Timothy, killed in a hit-and-run accident. I'm sure that it took a lot of trust in God to love their enemy, to not harbor feelings of anger and resentment against the one that took their son's life. It takes a lot of trust to say, God, you say forgive, so we're forgiving. It takes a lot of trust to say, God, you promised that good things can come out of anything, and we're going to look to find the good thing that can come out of this. Now, here we are 
a little more than 25 years later. And this morning, we have heard about a ministry on Long Island that is out in the middle or the very end, if you will, of a tremendous mission field that has touched thousands of lives. Because little is much when God is in it. They had no way of knowing how God would prosper that ministry in so many lives. What is required? As strange as it sounds, we close this morning by saying we're required to be frugal. We live in a society of so much abundance that we're comfortable wasting. We're comfortable wasting our food. We're comfortable wasting our clothes. How many of us wear the clothes we have? I don't mean have worn them once or twice. Really, how many of us wear the clothes? We could go in and pick out garment after garment after garment that we never worn. Why? Because we have too much. And we live in this life of abundance where if we really want to go somewhere, we just go. If we want to buy something, we just buy it. And then all of a sudden, we allow that to spill over into our spirituality. And we have opportunities and we waste them because we're going to have abundantly more opportunities. We have opportunities to grow and we waste them because we're going to hear somebody next week. Somebody will teach us next week. We have abundance to serve our mankind. We say, well, they're everywhere. I'll do it later. You know something else that stands out tremendous about this little boy's lunch that was magnified thousands of times over? There were 12 baskets that remained at the end Keep in mind, this meal was produced by a miracle. And what did Jesus say do? All four accounts. It's almost like God wanted to make sure this was emphasized. All four accounts, Jesus said, collect the remains. Why? Jesus didn't waste. He didn't believe in wasting one soul you're valuable in his sight. He didn't believe in wasting one opportunity to bless and prosper someone's life. And he didn't believe in wasting any resources. I don't eat leftovers. Jesus did. He gathered them up because Jesus ate leftovers. I want to challenge you. If you have so much that you don't eat leftovers, why don't you take and eat some leftovers over the next few months and then find an orphan in Wilson County that needs school clothes and tennis shoes and a jacket this winter, and why don't you take the money that you save from eating a few leftovers for a few months and put clothes on their backs? And you say, I don't have to eat leftovers to do that. I have plenty, okay? God's given you plenty so that you can do much with it. Why don't you see how much good God can do through you being the conduit? You just channel that and pipe it everywhere. Friends, I know the principles, but you want to talk specifics for a minute? I don't know the point specifically. I know we've laid out 2020 
dreams of things that God has needs right now in this community over the next 20 years if we could just find means to fulfill them. You know, if we cut back on our waste, we trusted God, we were unselfish and faithful. Not only think of what it would do for the Lord and His kingdom, think what it would do for us. It's not man that said it's more blessed to give than to receive. This morning, we think about the second greatest commandment as an emphasis for the day, but we close this lesson with an emphasis on the first greatest commandment, to love God with all of your being. If you're not wholly, completely God's this morning, please don't leave here. Don't leave here till you get things right in your life. If you've never been baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, once you as a believer repent of sins, confess before man, and be baptized into Christ. Come out of that water to live our life holy for God. And to live holy for God means that every day we're aware of our opportunity to serve mankind. Maybe you've been in a right and a saved relationship with God, but yet you evaluate your life now and you know that you separated from God. You're not right with God today. Won't you make that wrong right this morning? If it's something of a public nature or you simply want the, the prayers of a congregation of people that love you and care about you, you repent and come forward and confess that sin. Let's pray forgiveness. Let's leave here with a great determination that the world may know that we are Christ's disciples because of our love one for another. We can help you come as we stand, as we sing.